0: Who um, Rene Russo helps him track down is Jack Travis, who just comes off as any other '80s villain. He's an asshole with a pedophile mustache. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell, especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy Six, this is sequel cast. They are unsurpassed that following a franchise until the better end. This is SequelCast, and your hosts have asked that I
1: inform you that the show will now begin.
0: The theme song to the Sequel Cast is performed and written by Mark with the C. Check out his latest album, Motherfuckers Be Bullshitting, at markwiththeC.bandcamp.com. Now we return you to The Sequel cats. And that I you that the show will now begin. Same damn thing. Third and Highland.
1: Dragged for about half a block, I'll tell you what. Feel that texture. Feel it. Cheese grater time. Moving truck.
0: Moving truck? Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. Moving bullet. Moving bullet. Yeah, here. Right
1: here. This bullets is the best. Oh,
0: hey. Yeah, and it goes all the way through to the best. Right through. You're lucky. Was it 22? It's a 38,
1: right? It's a 38? It's a 38. It's a 38? That's a
0: wimpy 38. Now, this is a 38. Yours is bigger than mine? I think so. I don't think so. Hello, and welcome to the Sequel Cast. The Sequel Cast is a show that looks at movies in a franchise, one movie at a time. We're in the middle of looking at the Lethal Weapon series of films, and uh, currently looking at Lethal Weapon 3. This film came out in 1992, directed again by Richard Donner, who directed all four Lethal Weapon films with a screenplay by Jeffrey Bohm and Robert Mark Kamen. Uh, Jeffrey Boehm worked on the second Lethal Weapon. You might remember Robert Mark Kamen as a screenwriter for uh, the 80s Karate Kid movies. And uh, starring Mel Gibson, Danny Glover, this one introduces Rene Russo to the mix as a romantic interest. Cinematography by John DeBont, who later became a director with such films as Speed. I'm your host Matt. With me is uh, Thrasher.
1: Hello, Internet!
0: And, um, yeah, that's all That's all I have as people for this episode, but that's well and good. Uh, so, Lethal Weapon 3 came out in 92, and the second movie came out in uh, 89, so just three years after the other one. And the Lethal Weapon 2 came out two years after the original. So that's pretty relatively quick as far as sequels go, as far as release dates, wouldn't you say?
1: Yeah, it's it's. I actually kind of like that because it's enough time. That's a respectable amount of time to make a sequel because you know it's not going to be cranked out right off the like way too quick, but you also know the material will not have gone stale. I think that's a that's a good hang time to have between two films in the franchise.
0: Right. I mean, because too long and people start to forget about the franchise. And, uh, you know, but at this time, Mel Gibson and uh, Danny Glover were still really big stars. Just look at all the different things they did. I mean, by the time Lethal Weapon 3 came out, Mel Gibson was in an adaptation, a movie version of Hamlet, directed by Franco Zeffirelli, who also directed a really famous version of Romeo and Juliet. Although it was, um,. You know, before, uh, Mel Gibson did Braveheart, which is a thing he directed and starred in. But still pretty big. You notice uh, Mel Gibson's hair is shorter in this film.
1: But, but Well, shorter than it was in Braveheart, but that's one thing I like about Mel Gibson's character. His haircut never really changes.
0: It's a bit shorter than the other ones, but yeah. It's still a mullet, but not quite as much. And At one point, he has it in a ponytail where you can't really tell. Uh, so, Lethal Weapon 3, I've never seen this really before. This episode of the Sequel Cast, I did catch about thirty minutes of it. Um, God, a few years ago when it uh, debuted as something on Netflix, watch instantly, and enjoyed what I saw. But I it wasn't something I finished watching at the time. Uh, I do recall when I was younger, my parents went to see it, but uh, we were left home uh, with a babysitter as this was a rated uh, is a rated R movie. So, and um, have you seen this before, Thrasher? Yes,
1: it would have been on, on cable many, many, many years ago. Of course, this uh, Lethal Weapon 3 was one of those movies that seemed to be a, a constant presence in the 90s. Like the, the, the bombs, like every every Lethal Weapon movie seems to have a scene that, that everyone uh, everyone remembers. Like Lethal Weapon 2, uh, everybody remembers and still talks about the toilet scene. Lethal Weapon 3, it's the diffusing the bomb scene. That scene was endlessly talked about throughout the 90s.
0: Yeah, and the whole thing, oh, is it the green wire or not? You know, that's something you saw parodied in so many things.
1: Well, even then, in itself, that scene is a parody. That scene is a comment on bomb-defusing scenes in action movies, and a brilliant comment.
0: And to give you an idea of other movies that came out that same year in 92 for the um, U.S. uh, theatrical gross, number one was Aladdin, number two was Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. Number three is Batman Returns, all of which we've covered on past episodes, the sequel cast. This is which a you good can, crossover. Yeah, which you can check out at sequelcast.com. But the number four uh, movie, The Year of 92, in uh, the US was Lethal Weapon 3. And then right below it was A Few Good Men, uh, starring Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson. Yep. So. It's a really, you know, even the third in the series still is one of the top five grossing movies in the United States that year. It was a really big deal. Um, so the franchise still had juice in it left at that time. And, and it goes to say that all these Lethal Weapon sequels all did really, really well. So it's not, it wasn't one of those thing where you look at a franchise and the last movie just really falls on its ass and they don't make any more. Yeah, It was just... You know, you have to, when we've said this before about these Lethal Weapon films, is you have to look at it, trying not to think of the modern-day Mel Gibson, if you look at it at the time when it was released and all these things. He was one of the biggest action stars at the time, like him and Tom Cruise. And uh, I don't, I mean, you know, it was a different kind of action star than like Schwarzenegger or Stallone or Steven Seagal or John claude Van Damme. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah. So, in this film, right, you begin with the uh, the bomb scene, and yet, I don't know, it reminds you of the toilet scene, because it involves a big explosion, but he has to, they want to do the bomb, uh, deactivate it themselves, instead of waiting for the bomb squad to arrive. And it's a bomb in a car inside of a building in a parking garage, and a cat jumps on top of the car, and Mel Gibson pops up and says, oh, that's quite the catastrophe I just rolled my eyes at that one. I don't know. Yeah, but his
1: character is the type of character to make bad jokes.
0: His character is a bad... You're right, is a joker, makes cheesy jokes, loves Three Stooges. That's something that's consistent in all these films. Uh, but as a beginning, you know, it's, okay. it's different, <laughs> at least... You get sort of a comedic situation between these characters.
1: Well, it's comedic, but it's also high tension. I mean, there is something at stake. These people could be killed in an explosion.
0: It's not that high tension. I mean, do you think they're going to kill off the leads in the Lethal Weapon 3? I don't the think they minutes? would kill off
1: the leads, but I do believe that they would kill off a lead early on. One, because of the action movie cliche of killing off somebody for one of the other, other leads to avenge. And, uh, you know, another reason is, you know, maybe they don't want to pay to have one of the actors there for the whole thing of filming. Let's just pay to have him on set for a day, kill him off, <laughs> and get on with the film.
0: That would have been a pretty ballsy twist, and uh, I I do like the the scenario in the beginning of this film where, because they don't wait for the bomb squad to arrive and follow proper procedure, this big building gets destroyed, there's a lot of collateral damage, and because of that they're demoted to, uh, to beat cops. You know, they just gotta work on the street, yeah. keeping people from getting robbed and giving traffic tickets. And uh, it's something that is a cliche that you do see in cop movies, but at a certain point, you almost have to do it. Because if they're just a bunch of successful police officers, where's the drama in that?
1: Well, I think there could be a, a quite a bit of drama, but it's... it's I don't know. I, th- I think it, it, it's, it's sort of part of like having to up the stakes... It, at any cost means a lot of, you know, people getting bumped down the chain of command.
0: Right, and I mean, you're trying to introduce... It's done for comedy, and this film is certainly more comedic than the previous two, I think. It's, it has some darker stuff, but I'd say it's lighter in tone than the first two. Uh, certainly a lot more scenes are in broad daylight. There's not a lot of scenes filmed at night stuff he ran into with the first few films and um, on a street patrol an armored car gets hijacked and there's a car chase and you get a bit of a weird blend between action and comedy where uh, Mel Gibson as Riggs, you know, jumps on top of the armored car and is trying to fight peep, fight his way inside the car meanwhile um, Danny Glover as Roger Murtaugh is tailing them and uh, but he's not driving a, uh, a driver of another uh, I think it's like a, a mail truck or something is chasing him or in hot pursuit and it's this uh, big woman that's flirting with him the whole time even though he tells her that he's married. And I found this blend of action and comedy very uh, kind of forced.
1: Yeah, and, and maybe this is just because it's fresh in my mind because of that audio commentary track we recorded but I couldn't help but but be reminded of of the woman chasing Buford T. Justice. It seems like sort of forced, forced comedy amorousness.
0: Yeah, it's certainly a bit of that, where, you know, like, the car gets bumped, and Danny Glover's head goes down over her lap, because he gets knocked over, and she's like, ooh, honey, it's not time for that yet! I mean, there's at least half a dozen jokes like that. And it goes on and on, and it's not like this character becomes a new sidekick, but she does show up later in the movie. And, um, So with the past Lethal Weapon films, they introduced something with the plot that's kind of a a social issue at the time. And this one introduces a thing about uh, hijackers armed with armor-piercing bullets called as cop killers. Where you'd have uh, criminals at at this point in the 90s, and even through today to some extent, have more high-powered weaponry where they can shoot through a bulletproof vest with these armor-piercing rounds. Well, well,
1: to be be fair, bulletproof vests aren't nearly as bulletproof as the name would suggest. Even without the armor-piercing weapons.
0: Right, but the whole phenomenon of of, um, criminals having really high-powered weapons, whether it's a cop killer or bullets or rocket launcher or whatever, is something that you did see in the news at the time, where you have these big sieges between cops and the criminals because of the higher-powered weaponry at stake. But, uh, you know, as far as uh, a plot goes, trying to track down the source of these armor-piercing bullets, I don't think it's as strong as a hook as the somewhat forced-apart height angle in the second film, or the stuff with the former, uh, you know, Navy SEAL in Vietnam from the first one. It's stretching it a bit. Uh, and, you know, e- even though as quickly as Merton Riggs or knocked down to beat cops in the beginning. They're reinstated as detectives for helping in this uh, hijack.
1: Well, You know, would this be the first film where the angry desk sergeant who's always threatening to bump the loose cannons down to, be- to beat cops actually does bump them down to beat cops so fast their head spin?
0: <laughs> I think so. I mean, an- another it got me thinking of an- another movie that has this sort of scene is um, Last Action Hero starring Arnold Schwarzenegger uh-huh. has a very extended scene of, uh, of cops yeah. getting chewed out and knocked down and reinstated and it's something you've seen in a lot of movies it's okay, they just really did that for, them, for some jokes in the beginning and you get a uh, romantic interest in this one, just sort of like you did in the last film for uh, Riggs, played by Mel Gibson in the form of Internal Affairs Sergeant Lorna Cole played by Renee Russo
1: who was doing her very best, Michelle Pfeiffer, throughout this whole film?
0: Oh, you think? Yeah, every. Uh, I I keep seeing. I, I actually
1: I didn't I I had for I had to look it up before I realized it was Renee Russo. I thought it was Michelle Pfeiffer.
0: Yeah, and uh, I mean before this movie, she was in stuff like like Major League. And... She was fresh
1: off of uh, Free Jack with Nick uh, Jagger.
0: <laughs> yeah, she was.
1: Came out the same year.
0: So she was kind of doing movies that were not the highest, not the biggest thing around, but after Lethal Weapon 3, you know, she did some more popular things like Major League 2 or the Thomas Crown Affair remake. Um, So she really had... You know, this was kind of her first major big league movie with a ton of stars. Because even though Major League uh, starred Charlie Sheen, I I don't think you'd call it a, a big budget movie or anything, like a huge... Well, it's, it's a well remembered movie. It's a well remembered movie, but it's not. It's with sequels, I might add. But uh, it's not, you know, the as big of an event film as *Lethal Weapon* three is. Um, so the the bad guy in this movie, who um, Rene Russo helps him track down, is Jack Travis, who just comes off as any other '80s villain. He's an asshole with a pedophile mustache. <laughs> he. Runs a bunch of real estate, but deals with the, these weapons and drug running on the side. Uh, near the beginning, he kind of uh, he punishes one of the guys that um, you know was responsible for the armored car being taken down by the cops, and he punishes them by pushing them in a vat of wet cement and dumping cement on top of them. And it's supposed to show how cold and heartless he is. But I don't. I just felt nothing from this bad guy. I wasn't crazy about the. South African bad guys uh, in Lethal Weapon 2, either. But at least, I guess there's novelty of them being South African and being in business suits. Because South Africans don't wear business suits, Matt? Is that what you're saying? Well, you don't see South Africans very much in film as bad guys overall as a whole, compared to, you know, you look at the 80s, what is it, like Russians or Cubans or I don't know, that sort of thing. But what do you think about villain Jack Travis?
1: I, I'll agree. It's not much of an impression.
0: Yeah. It's, uh, they could have done better. You know, this time around, they don't try to force something in like in the second film where they bring up that one of the villains was responsible for killing uh, Mel Gibson's character's wife. Which I still think is such a cheat. It is. It's very much a cheat. And they don't do that, at least. But you never look at Jack Travis and feel like this guy's business.
1: Well, you, know, you know what thug. it is yeah. in, in, in the in the first, firstly, the weapon. Mel Gibson's character, Danny Glover's character, and uh, excuse me, and uh, and uh, Gary Busey's villain character. They're all really well defined, but also really big characters with a lot of personality. And, you know, the second film, Gibson, Danny Glover, they're even bigger personalities. And the third film, their personalities are are well-defined, but have still gotten even bigger. You need a villain with a big personality to, to really be their equal.
0: Yeah, and you look at... I mean, action movies tend to do well with villains with big personalities. Just look at Die Hard, which is something we've talked about on the sequel cast before, with, oh, like, yeah. Alan Rickman in the first film, or Jeremy Irons in the third one. You need that kind of bigger-than-life, over-the-top, campy performance. Do, uh, do you have a dog?
1: Uh, no, but the neighbors do. just oh, that's fine. I, I, I shall shutify the window.
0: Okay. Shutify, that's a new word. Now, this is a good time to talk about our sponsor at uh, Stitcher.com. Stitcher.com is an app for your... Uh, Smartphone, whether it be like a Windows Phone window. or Android phone or iPhone or BlackBerry, said. and you can check out Stitcher at uh, stitcher.com, and if you sign up uh, on there with uh, at s t i t c h e r dot com slash sequelcast, you will have a chance to win one hundred American dollars if you live in the U.S. Um, and besides, when you sign up that way at stitcher.com slash sequelcast, you Get SequelCast automatically added as one of your favorite shows. It's a way to listen to podcasts on the go. So you don't have to wait you know, five or ten minutes for a show to download on your way to work. You can just listen to it streaming, just like that. It's really easy, really convenient. And besides SequelCast, there's lots of other great shows on Stitcher as well. So sign up at Stitcher.com slash SequelCast for a chance to win $100. Shake uh, shake that money maker. And uh, also, special thanks, of course go to uh, Mark with a C, who wrote and performed our uh, theme song. Great theme song, and you can check out his stuff at markwithac.com. Or uh, check out his albums at markwithac.bandcamp.com. So uh, now back to us talking about Lethal Weapon 3.
1: Hey, you know what I miss? Yes. The crazy saxophone riffs.
0: You still have some saxophone riffs. It's not as big in this film as in the other ones.
1: It was just so big and brassy in, in, in the first film. I kind of feel the franchise lost something when, when that was was made less important.
0: It is certainly toned down. Uh, speaking of things returning, though, from other films, uh, Joe Pesci returns as Leo Gets, but uh, this time Leo Gets is a real estate agent, and in fact, uh, the character wasn't even in the screenplay originally. He was kind of added later on when they could work a deal to get Joe Pesci back into the movie. Uh <laughs> It's really kind of disturbing to see Joe Pesci with uh, platinum blonde dyed hair. It's a very strange look. Yeah, it looks it looks
1: delightfully skeevy. <laughs> this would have been, yeah, you know what? This would have been after his Oscar for Goodfellas, wouldn't
0: it? Um, let me look that up. I'm not sure. *Leaf the Weapon* three was in '92, and *Goodfellas* was in '90. You're right. Yeah. So after his Academy Award-winning role in uh, *Goodfellas*. Yeah, I mean, he, he was, but before he was... *Casino*, which was another uh, Scorsese film he was in. <laughs>
1: And he, he was a really big star around this time, so I know, I'm sure that you know, they were looking for a, a way to, to work him in. Although, I mean, Joe Pesci has this really distinct voice, uh, a voice which some find funny. Yeah. Okay, so we're not going to do that routine. All right, so, so it's a what, voice What do you mean
0: sort of- that sounds funny? Okay, okay, okay. They fuck you at the drive-thru. They f- that doesn't even sound like Joe Pesci. <laughs> no, no.
1: What? What? Is it funny? Does it sound funny to you? Am I some sort yeah. of clown? Am I, am I do a little dance to make you laugh, to amuse you? What?
0: That's a bit of Christopher Walken in that, too, but okay. Yeah, but, uh... Am I a clown?
1: Yeah. Well, <laughs> But one thing... But he has this distinct voice. Is And maybe this is just me, but when you listen to his voice... Did it sound like they had artificially pitched his voice up about a half octave?
0: I don't think they uh, used audio processing on his voice to sound more high-pitched, but I think he probably amped up the character a bit more. I mean, in the first, in a, sorry, not in the first film, in Lethal Weapon 2, Leo Getz, uh, played by Joe Pesci, doesn't have a whole lot to do. They're sort of witness protection programs. Uh, they're kind of, you know, protecting him in that film. And he just happens to be along for the ride. In this film, he's not even involved in the action, really, at all. He just happens to be selling uh, Danny Glover's house. And he just shows up for a few scenes. Like, they throw this character in where it never really feels organic. At least in the second film, he gets captured and they have to rescue him. It's, uh... I don't quite... It's nice to have him back, but at the same time, it's just so... Forced, I I feel with him going through the house, making references to stuff that happened in the first two movies in uh, Danny Glover's house. Yeah, in a way, did he s-
1: see the first movie? Is that how he knows to make those references?
0: Well, he's talking about, oh, this is when a guy, these drug dealers, these guys drove through the wall and there was a big shootout. Okay, but uh, this is still, still a great house, okay? Okay, so, um, but yeah, I don't know. I guess he would have still stayed in touch with them. I mean, he is the real estate agent, and they... And they try to make it a surprise that it's like Murtaugh's house, but it's like, wouldn't you know if you're a real estate agent? Aren't you in the house a lot to get the lay of the land before you sell it to someone? Well, I guess
1: that's the other thing, is that, is that Danny Glover apparently felt comfortable with Joe Pesci selling his house after the stuff that happened in the second movie.
0: Right, and presumably they're trying to sell it because this is the one where uh, Danny Glover's character says he's going to retire. Finally. He just says, like, yeah, six or seven more days before retirement. And uh, it's nice to see the family again. I don't think it's the same actors, necessarily, playing the kids. But uh, you have a, a running gag with uh, the one daughter, you know, being an actress. Doing her
1: condiments.
0: She's not doing condom ads. She's in a movie but gets fired. But then, like, Murtaugh, or uh, Riggs, goes crazy on the director. And uh, they hire her again. It's just more. <laughs> That's tenable. how Hollywood works, I, I guess. And the guy looks kind of like Steven Spielberg with the sunglasses and the the long gray hair. It's uh definitely kind of a forced gag. But um, another thing about the character of the villain Jack Travis is he used to be a cop, and um, at one point he sneaks back into the police station and kills. Uh, the, one of the hijackers they arrested from the beginning with the car chase to cover up his tracks, but he's caught on camera, which is how they identify who this guy is. And uh, Leo Guts happens to recognize who Jack Travis is from the real estate dealings. And, um... So, I mean, you get a scene what, where they track him down in a hockey game, and they announce over the PA that, uh... Jack Travis is there, and the police are going to get him, so everyone please stay calm. And they get into a bit of a scuffle, and, and uh, Jack Travis manages to shoot Joe Pesci, his character, and leaves him there bleeding on the ice. And as Merton Riggs help their friend, Jack Travis gets away. It's a weird scene. that doesn't really go anywhere. Like, I don't know. It. The character of well, Jack got- Travis is flat out not interesting, and they, having him shoot Joe Pesci, okay. But if you would have killed him, that would have made more of an impact.
1: Well, they got they got to give his character something evil to do. So killing a, a, an acquaintance—I I, I can't even say friend or ally, but an acquaintance of the two main characters—is about the extent. But the, he doesn't uh,
0: kill him; he just injures them. Well, well, yeah, attempted murder. Attempted murder, right? And uh, you have another sort of—you uh, have a more interesting action scene later on where they're trying to investigate. Um. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say headquarters, but it's kind of like a a warehouse where um, Jack Travis had been seen. And at the shootout, they uh, it's kind of these young, these younger uh, teenagers with guns, and they shoot them because they're being shot at. And um, Murtaugh, you know, played by Danny Glover, recognizes one of the kids as the best friend of one of his sons, and he breaks down crying. And it's a pretty well acted scene because. Uh, earlier in the film they make a gag about how one of Danny Glover's son's friends has uh, gain colors on him, and it turns mm. out he isn't a gain, and he got shut down because Merton uh, rigs are just self-defense. They're being shot at, at this, trying to track down Jack Travis. And um, well, it's interesting that, you know, the father accidentally kills one of his son's friends, I think it would have been much more interesting had his son ended up being in a game and he accidentally shoots his own son without realizing it. I think that might have been a more interesting way to play the scene. Yeah. What do you think? Do you think that would have been too much? Well, I, mean, that, I don't know. I kinda, like Murtaugh I kill, like, like, could Murtaugh kill his own son without realizing it? <laughs> I, I,
1: wouldn't, I wouldn't have Murtaugh kill his own son, but I would love to see Murtaugh have a more personal stake in what's going on. I w- I would love it if if Murtaug came like because what a, cause I don't think because M- kids they're not bad kids but I could see like his youngest son kind of being led astray and I could see you know Murtagh stumbling upon that at the worst possible moment uh, but but I mean I want to see him. Have I want to see him have a personal stake in what's going on? No one really has a personal stake in what's going on. I mean, at least in the second one, they kind of threw a, a threw a bone at us by making one of the one of the South African guys responsible for for uh, Mel Gibson's wife's death. But, but they don't even try that.
0: Well, but they try to make this important to Danny Glover's character because they go to the funeral of this kid, and the family goes to him and says, "You gotta you gotta catch the guy that did that that gave these weapons to my son. That's responsible for this." And um, and you get scenes where uh, Murtaugh is gets drunk and sort of angrily confronts Mel Gibson or Riggs on a boat. And it's sort of the idea that Murtaugh is becoming more like Riggs because he's unhinged after a friend of his getting beat up or getting or sorry, a friend of his son's getting killed. But it doesn't quite work. I like the idea, but it could be pulled off better. Uh, another thing this film does is, what do you think about the romantic stuff between uh, Rene Russo and Mel Gibson?
1: I like seeing him have. I
0: like seeing him have a because because
1: we we get to see him get a real human connection with Danny Glover. I love that we now finally get to see him have a romantic connection. I like that he's. I like that he's kind of. Healed enough after the death of his wife that he that he can be involved romantically with another woman, and I like that she's a little bit crazy,
0: right? You know, it's sort of like the the female version of him, so to speak. And the, the, but at the same time,
1: I don't think it can last, and I wonder who's the rebound for who, because it's the rebounds when you go after the it was when you go after the damaged goods, because there are no goods like damaged goods.
0: Right, but damage goods typically tend to be or can be more trouble than they're worth. Well, that's why they're
1: the rebound. You can get in and get out quickly.
0: Ah, that joke works on a few levels. I see what you did there. Boom, boom. Get in and get out, just like a penis. All right. <laughs> it's always funnier when you explain the joke, isn't it? No. Which is sometimes a lethal weapon. <laughs> can be a lethal weapon, sure. Uh, I thought it was neat that you know. Riggs goes to uh, her house, and she's watching. She has Three Stooges stuff, and she's playing a three sto. She has a Three Stooges Nintendo game on the TV.
1: Which, by the way, I played the Three Stooges Nintendo game. It is surprisingly fun and very true to the source material.
0: Yeah, uh, why don't we talk about that for a second? Um, I oh, okay. I've played that <laughs> Three Stooges Nintendo game as well, and it's one of those things where you look at the Three Stooges. They made hundreds of. Um, you know, these shorts. short comedic shorts over the years, how are they going to do it as a video game? And you do it as a series of, uh, of mini games.
1: It's just mini games and challenges that are all modeled after some of their most famous scenes. So.
0: And, you know, the idea of having a game being a bunch of mini games was pretty ahead of its time. And that's something you see now with a lot of iPhone games or, uh, like, Nintendo DS games. Yeah, I mean, this was
1: long before Mario Party and WarioWare.
0: Exactly. But it's the same sort of idea, even though there's not as many games in there. But it uses voice samples from the show. Um, but I remember there's one where you get there's soup and there's uh, crackers in the soup. Yeah, you have to eat the crackers
1: before the oysters in this, before the oysters in the plate eat the cra- eat the crackers. Yep. Which again is a classic Stooges routine. Although the part the part I love is when like I think it's Curly's in the boxing match. And like Pop Goes the Weasel sends him into a rage and makes him undefeatable, but the record player breaks, so Mo has to like run across town. You have to run across town and get this music box or or, or alarm clock or something to place Pop Goes the Weasel and get it back to the get it back to the boxing ring before Curly gets knocked out. <laughs> it is great.
0: Yeah, and what's interesting about that sequence in that video game is uh so you're just playing on the bottom half of the screen, and the top half of the screen shows uh, Curly, is it? It's boxing, right? Yep. Yeah, it shows Curly getting the crap boxed out of him. <laughs> so it kind of creates an urgency as you're playing on the bottom screen. Not a lot of games did uh, split-screen stuff um, back then. So, back to Lethal Weapon 3, the scene where they uh, uh, have sex is, is very famous, although there's no nudity in it, um, which is kind of interesting. You had nudity in the first two films, and there's none in this one. But, that, but it was, those were never
1: principal characters.
0: Uh, yeah, the love interest of the second in the second film, she was topless. But no. um, but you're right, she's not as central as the Renee Russo character is in this one. And they get a scene where they're showing each other's battle wounds. And I, I think it's a clever way to do that sort of scene, to kind of up the flirtation between the two. Of course, th- that
1: would be totally mocked in the second Swamp Thing movie. Is it? Yeah, but we will have to do the Swamp Thing movies as a palate cleanser uh, between massive franchises at some point. But yeah, there's a scene, there, there's like a flirty scene in the second Swamp Thing movie where these two mercenaries are comparing battle stars. It just, it just keeps, it, it keeps going over the top and, and goes <laughs> to a really silly place.
0: But Swamp Thing, there was two movies and a TV show. And an animated series. And an Oh dear God. Yeah. And an All
1: based series. on a comic strip based on a character that originally appeared in uh, House of Mystery.
0: And that's uh DC? Yes it is. But Marvel had Man Thing, but that's different than Swamp Thing?
1: Uh it is well it's it's different than Swamp Thing, but
0: yes. Which it came is first? very different. Uh that uh that would have been uh DC. Swamp Thing came before Man Thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, but we're not talking about banned themes. We're talking about Lethal Weapon Three. Uh, so back to the film. You get a climactic action scene uh, with the heroes against Jack Travis at a um, how do I put this at a construction site where it's you know kind of the the shell of a bunch of houses, not completed houses that are on there, and. I don't know. Visually, I don't think it's that interesting. You have it set on fire and all this stuff, but it's not nearly as interesting to seek Which is like in the second film, where there's a, a house by the water on stilts that they managed to, like crash the whole house down, or even the the karate fight in the yard in the rain in the first film.
1: Yeah, it almost it almost seems like a cheat. To do, to do it like in a uh, houses under construction, because that's probably got to be one of the cheapest locations to get. Like, it's that and that and Lumber Yards. Are the two, <laughs> lumber, Oh, that Lumber Yards and Quarries are the three cheapest locations you can get to film in.
0: Yeah, and Doctor Who uh, old-school episodes know a lot about filming in quarries. Absolutely. But you're right. It, it does look cheap. And you think if you're going to have a climactic scene... Part of having a good action scene is having a neat setting for it. And having it in a uncompleted house, even though you can catch things on fire, isn't very interesting. It's just not. And I would have liked to see him do something more with that. Because, uh, And also, kind of in a spin of what happens on the second film... Rene Russo's character gets shot, but doesn't die. And, uh. Well, I mean, we've
1: seen her battle scars. We know she can survive it. She's a survivor.
0: Right, but they try and play it for drama near the end of the film where he kind of comforts her, just like Danny Glover comforted him at the end of uh, Lethal Weapon 2. Oh, yeah. And uh, one thing I do want to touch on that I forgot to mention the opening credits of this film feature an original song done for the movie uh, by Sting. Called it's probably me with the stain and Eric Clapton performing on it, and you see like fire in slow motion, kind of snake around against a black background. What did you think of that, Thrasher? Um, uh, it's kind of a moody it, number, sort of slower paced. Yeah, it almost it almost
1: feels like what they would play over the closing credits.
0: It does, and they like and in, they, in yeah. the
1: other like I like I liked it in Lethal Weapon One we don't go through an opening title sequence, we just kind of go directly into the film. I, I, I wish this had maintained that. you you've got to do... To, to have a title sequence that doesn't take you out of the film, there's got to be something really special about it. But slow motion fire just isn't special enough.
0: Right. Even it, if it, it's almost like,
1: here's an appetizer before the explosions later.
0: Yeah. It just doesn't work very well. Although I think the song is okay. I think that song's better than the song over the end credits of this movie, which is a Elton John-Eric Clapton collaboration called Runaway Train. Uh, no, it's not the Runaway Train song you might be thinking of. It's it's something else. But
1: D- Does it have Lethal Weapon in the lyrics?
0: Uh, I don't believe so.
1: Because, that again, after the Lethal Weapon song in the first movie, like all, all I can think when I see a Lethal Weapon title is how can I turn this title into a song? You know? Lethal Weapon you, Lethal Weapon me,
0: Lethal Weapon us, Lethal Weapon 3 And Speaking of which, we were joking last episode that Lethal Weapon 2, the poster said, The Magic is Back. And well, guess the poster, what the poster
1: for Lethal Weapon 3
0: says? It says, for 3, it says, The Magic is Back Again. What? magic are they talking about i don't know and the poster is a real hack job because you see mel gibson and danny glover and then in between them popping up is a photoshopped head of leo gets
1: it looks like he's trying to it looks like he's jumping up and down and trying to get into the frame and they've even got like and hey joe pesci scribbled between uh gibson and glover's names
0: but joe pesci isn't even that tall like it just ugh I don't know, it just stretches. The thing is,
1: you wouldn't know it was Joe Pesci if you didn't see that Joe Pesci scribble on the poster, because normally his hair doesn't look like that, and that hair is so fake, it destroys the authenticity of Joe Pesci's face. It looks like some sort of, you know what it is? It looks like a spitting image, a badly made spitting image puppet of Pavarotti that fell in some bleach. That's what <laughs> that is.
0: It's so obscured, it's like, why do they even bother with Joe Pesci's face? I know we just won an Oscar at the time, but ish So I mean, also, in- yeah, go ahead. Gibson and
1: Glover. That's very unsafe. You just have your finger resting on the trigger. You want to, if you if your finger's going to be resting, it should be resting uh, on the trigger guard. Uh, there's a lot of accidental shootings that can happen that way.
0: Uh, gun safety is always important to keep in mind. Um, I mean, in in this action climax that we were talking about earlier with the construction site on fire, you know, Mel Gibson's really mad. He's like, oh, this guy screwed me over twice. I'm never going to let, you know, I'm he's really going to get it. And Mel Gibson tries to really sell the performance and he acts really angry and crazy like uh, that character of Riggs gets sometimes. But as an audience member, I did not buy it.
1: Yeah, we've really seen him progress and heal a lot of his mental wounds, so it's now, when he gets crazy, it's as if he's only acting crazy.
0: It feels a bit when Popeye the Sailor Man eats his spinach and kind of. Oh.
1: Yeah. Goes you take it. your crazy pill.
0: Yeah, might as well. Uh, at the very end of Lethal Weapon 3, there's a nice callback to the original where Murtaugh is in his bathtub alone and his family burst in saying, Happy retirement. Yeah, that was cute. But then uh, Murtaugh says, no, I'm not going to retire. It turns out I'm not too old for this shit. Yeah, it's kind of, and you don't quite buy his reasoning why. I guess because he feels guilty about uh, shooting and killing a friend of his son's, maybe. Or he's like, there's always going to be crime out there, and i got to stop it. I mean, I don't know. It just, I, I don't quite buy that moment. And then Leo gets jumps in, too, which is really weird. And he's like, oh, I saw the house. And then... That is a terrible Joe Pesci, I shouldn't even try. And then Murtaugh tells them, no, we don't want this, This we're taking this house off the market, I'm going to live in this house another ten years.
1: That's an even worse uh, Danny Glover.
0: I wasn't even trying a Danny Glover for that one. <laughs> <laughs> but
1: uh, which, which is weird, like, so, so if they decide not to sell the house, do they owe Joe Pesci any money for all the work he did trying to sell it to begin with?
0: No, they make the point that Joe Pesci's like, okay, okay, so you're my friend, I'm not going to give you a commission. But he demands that they pay for tires for his car, because I guess his car had the tires shot out in, a, in an action sequence. And what's even cheesier from this is you don't have, like... Uh, I don't believe Murtaugh bounces into the bathroom as well, although you could have. But you have Riggs and Murtaugh getting the, the car... Stall. Yeah, right, with the dog pops out of the water. But, uh... Now, Murtaugh, Riggs and Murtaugh drive off, and then you get these, like, at the end of the credits, you get a very short scene of them driving off to intercept a, another explosion case in a building where they only get there before the bomb squad, and the joke is Riggs like, okay, I get it, I can do it this time. And they drive up to the building, and then before they even get in the building, the building explodes. But it's this... The shot is filmed from so far away, it's... It, this had to have been done with extras or something. Because you get no close-ups of them. It's just like sort of voiceover, I presume. Yeah, ADR. And, and they see the building explode and they're like, oh, we got to drive away. No one's going to believe this. And they both say, I'm too old for this shit.
1: Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a bit wah-wah.
0: And it's a scene that comes after the whole credits. You don't really notice it unless you watch the whole credits, like I happen to this time around. But it just feels even cheesier. Like, I don't know. We've talked about The Lethal Weapon three for a bit, Uh, but before we have our thoughts on it, let's play our pitch a sequel game. We pretend Lethal Weapon four didn't exist, and we pitch a sequel. Uh, What we would do if we had that decision to go back in time and make a Lethal Weapon four, pretending part four did not exist? Uh, I'll begin. I think what you do around the time of Lethal Weapon four is you say, okay, Joe Pesci's a very popular actor, we're going to spin this off into like a Leo Getz film. <laughs> so it wouldn't be called Lethal Weapon 4 exactly, but it would be called like The Misadventures of Leo Getz. And it would have a cameo in there from Mel Gibson and Danny Glover. And uh, it would start with a very simple scenario of uh, Leo Getz, played by Joe Pesci, of course, is in a parking lot late at night smoking a cigarette, and he notices a uh, a bank an armored bank truck drives by and somehow it it gets, it gets bumped and a huge sack of money falls out the armored bank truck and the bank truck drives off doesn't notice it joe Pesci runs in gets this big, gets this big bag of money and uh, somehow he gets chased by all these people trying to get this big bag of money and it's about you have the dilemma does leo get return the money to the bank does he try to spend it all before the cops catch him Does he uh, call in his friends uh, Riggs and Murtaugh to help him in a scene for a cameo? And yes, he probably does. But it's uh, trying to use the Lethal Weapon name to spin off Leo Getz into his own film. That's my idea. Thrasher? I actually had
1: something along some of the lines because it was going to. My Lethal Weapon 4 was also going to have more of a focus on on Leo Getz. The premise with this is he's had success in real estate. So it's a few years later, now Danny Glover's character actually is going to retire. And, like, the, the force is actually making him retire. He's just getting too old. He, he, is, he is too old for it in every way. Hmm. You know, in, the, the the police department doesn't have to, you know, he, he's, he's filled, he's, his pension's ready to go. They just can't keep him on. So he's kind of being forced into early retirement. And it feels, well, what in his mind is early retirement, and he feels kind of bad about that. So uh, Mel Gibson, his friend tries to tries to you know help him out. You know all of his kids are moved away on their own or, or in college. So Danny Glover and his wife uh, want to move into a smaller house. They want to move into like a nice kind of Florida retirement community. And so so Gibson and Glover go to Florida to like look for a nice retirement community. And it just so happens that Leo gets is down there. Uh, you know, again, he's been really successful in real estate. He's now actually developing a new retirement community. And about half the places are built and, and lived in. The other half is under construction. Uh, and he's showing them around, really trying to you know, find Danny Glover, a nice place for he and his wife to, to live out their golden years. Uh, and it just so happens that the people he's involved with, the other like land developers and contractors that he's involved with to make this retirement community, turns out they're crooked. They're using the retirement community uh, at, to to smuggle drugs, probably probably uh, cocaine from South America. They're actually hiding it in the foundations and, and in the foundations of the buildings that are under construction, and and it just so happens that, uh, that that they stumble across this while touring touring the facilities. So the crooked people involved with the retirement community decide well we got people who know what we're up to. we got to rub them out. So next thing you know, Gibson, Glover, and Pesci are now on the run from Pesci's former business partners. But here's one of the, here's one of the twists, though. The nice old man from the retirement community is actually a really old mafia guy who, uh, who is actually living in the retirement community so that he can manage this whole smuggling operation firsthand on site, realizing that no one suspects the harmless old man. And uh, and so so he'll 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 be kind of he'll be kind of the main villain because he's actually he's actually pretty spry and he and Glover will actually have a full on confrontation at the end of the movie. Uh, the fight will probably take place near the retirement community's pool in a hurricane because there's going to a hurricane's going to come up.
0: Just like in uh, Karate Kid Two. Uh yeah, yeah. Something like that. Okay. But, but, no, but no redemption. The, no, that, the that was a typhoon, wasn't it?
1: Uh, no, I believe... I hurricane. thought that was a hurricane, but but that's... I don't know. We'll have to re, re-listen to that episode.
0: Yeah, and you can check out past episodes of SequelCast at SequelCast.com or uh, go to Facebook, look up SequelCast. You can talk to us on there. And if you go to iTunes and look up SequelCast, um, be sure to leave us a review, because we like those. Those help uh, with the downloads. So, um... Okay, well, um, why don't we give our thoughts on Lethal Weapon three, and then we'll move on to the what you're watching segment. Um, uh, Le- Lethal, Weapon- Lethal Weapon three is okay.
1: I mean, it's 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 okay, but it's okay, but
0: not great. You know, as Leo Gets would say, it's okay, 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 okay. Yeah, it. You know, I think the second one's a bit better, but um, is Lethal Weapon three better than say uh, Die Hard? Uh, live Free or Die Hard, the fourth Die Hard? Sure, I think it is. It's better than usually a number three in a series is, but not by much. It's uh, it's okay. So um, now we're going to move into our last segment of the show, What You're Watching, where we talk about some something, whether it be a movie, video game, TV show, book, whatever that we've enjoyed in the past week. And uh, as always, this section doesn't contain spoilers because uh, we have an international listening audience, the sequel Sequelcast. Uh, certainly, based on the Facebook page, we have listeners uh, from uh, England and Australia and so forth. And we don't want to spoil things others might not have seen yet. And also, they're not the focus of the show. Uh, so, with that in mind, um, do you have anything you want to start with, Thresher? Uh,
1: yeah, I, I kind of... Again, I, I, I work freelance, and so I can get buried in work. And so sometimes... I just need to stop, take a hard break from everything I'm doing, and just crash for a day. And I did that uh, earlier in the week, and uh, I watched, in one sitting, watched the entirety of Barry and Fulcher's Snuffbox. And oh, man! Is this a brilliant comedy.
0: What is it about? That's a very difficult question to answer.
1: I guess it's kind of about comedy and death. Uh, It stars... uh, uh, Matt Barry and Rich Ful- uh, Fulcher who who people may remember from uh, the supporting roles they had in The Mighty Boosh. Uh, but uh, what what it is is that uh, Matt Berry plays the king plays the hangman for Great Britain. He plays the hangman to the king. And Rich Fulcher plays his kind of best friend and assistant. Uh, and they, you know, at the beginning of every episode, they oversee an execution by hanging. And then the rest of the show is these sort of vignettes. Uh, what happens to them on the way to, at, and away from this, this stuffy gentleman's club uh, where they hang out. But also things that happen around them. And it's all, it is it is incredibly meta. It looks it makes meta comedy look not meta.
0: And it's a TV show that was only on for one series, is that correct? Uh,
1: yeah, only one series, six episodes. And yet, yeah, it, it does... It, kind of does tell a, a single coherent story. Okay. And it takes all these tangents which I, which I love. It's, it's In a certain, structurally it's kind of like a Fireside Theater album but on the television. And actually, uh, speaking of the uh, Firesign Theater uh, I just want to have uh, a wee wee bit of mourning uh, because unfortunately uh, one of their members uh, passed away uh,
0: last week. And uh, who passed away? Peter
1: Peter Bergman.
0: And what is the Fireside Theater? Fireside Theater
1: was a uh, was a a comedy uh, a comedy group that started on a local radio station out in California in the '60s, and all their comedy was was very stream of consciousness, very psychological, uh, very very uh, lyrical. it, they're listening to their albums like an experiencing a clown 's dream suspended in the raindrop off the tip of the nose of a poison dart frog and and the thing is they 've been active until you know the modern day i mean they they still release albums and do live tours it's really difficult to describe just, you know look, look for their uh, just you know look for fireside theater material it, it really is fantastic. How can you be in two places at once when you 're not anywhere at all is a very good album mm.
0: Um, for me, something I've seen within the past week is, uh, a movie that had some Academy Award, uh, nominations, um, called The Tree of Life, starring, uh, Brad Pitt and Sean Penn. Mm. And, um, it's directed by Terrence Malick, who, this is the first film of his that I've seen, but he, he's, his movies always have a lot of, um scenes of nature, and as I understand, you know, just don't have, aren't the easiest thing to follow. They're pretty dense films. Uh, And along all that, I mean, Tree of Life, it's really hard to describe. You know, the main storyline is about, Brad Pitt plays the uh, the father of uh, three boys who, um, one of the boys. This is hard to describe, isn't it? Well, not that part, but you know, like one of the boys dies at one point, and it kind of goes between like an older version of one of the brothers grieving over his younger brother's death from several years ago, and in between all that, you have sequences about the uh, the creation of the planet Earth and dinosaurs roaming the Earth and um, evolution, and it kind of goes between all these different storylines without. And you have scenes, and certainly things happen in these scenes, but they're not chronological in order, and the whole film is like two and a half hours long. And it's, uh, it's really pretty to look at. Um, very abstract, and I'm not sure if I'd recommend it. You know, I enjoyed it, but I don't think it's something I'll watch again. I'm not sure it's something a lot of my friends would enjoy. Am I making any sense? I don't know. It feels like something I'm glad to have seen.
1: No, I I understand I understand what you're saying. I, I've experienced things like that on occasion.
0: Like what? Oh, I, I guess I can think of you know the last movie I saw like this that was really abstract and kind of jumped all over the place, but still very visually very pretty was uh, The Fountain. Oh yeah, starring Hugh Jackman. Huh? Did you see that one? No, I didn't. I heard a lot
1: about it, but it it it, it kind of slipped me slipped me by. Yeah.
0: But have you seen a movie like that where it just kind of jumps all over the place and you know it's just such a weird artsy film that it's not something you're sure a lot of friends could get into.
1: Oh gosh. I I have seen some of it. well it's 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 hard it's hard for me to say cuz immediately I I'm thinking of the the uh Apocalypse Now uh Director's cut that came out a few years back. There was a screening for it at our college, and I convinced I convinced a bunch of my friends to go see it with me. It's a very important movie to me, uh, but I was the only one who felt that my time had been enriched. When we left the theater, they were all looking at me like, "What the fuck did you just take us to see?" <laughs> and and I'll admit that uh, the, the 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 director's cut, the redo of Apocalypse Now is kind of all over the place. The film takes these um, these diversions, but they're amazing diversions. It's like the diversions that are taken in the Odyssey, and the Iliad. It, it, they still matter, even if they aren't the, the kind of, like, razor-sharp, straight-line narrative that, that we've come to expect in this modern world.
0: Right. Um, and I think that'll about do it for this episode. I have an appointment I have to keep, but... uh. Thanks for listening to this episode of the sequel cast. Uh, next week we'll be talking about uh, Lethal Weapon 4, so rounding out our look at the Lethal Weapon Quadrilogy. Um, you should check out the website again at sequelcast.com, and uh, you can send us an email at sequelcast.gmail.com or check out our Facebook page, just search sequelcast. Uh, for the sequel cast, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Saying, hmm. Say, oh, is this the red one or the blue one? You said it was the red one. Put it in your mouth. Put it in your mouth, Riggs. (laughs) (laughs) i never want
1: to hear you say that to me again, and I'm tired of asking you to stop it.
0: Only friend, no one will you see. Ask yourself, who'd watch for me? solitary
1: voice to speak out and set me free. I hate to say it, I hate to say it, but it's probably
0: me.